this morning is found in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua, in the fourth chapter, beginning at the first verse. The book of Joshua, chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel, out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there unto this day. For the priests which bear the Ark stood in the midst of Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to speak unto the people, according to all that Moses commanded Joshua. And the people hasted and passed over. And it came to pass, when all the people were clean passed over, that the ark of the Lord passed over, and the priests in the presence of the people. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, passed over armed before the children of Israel, as Moses spake unto them. About forty thousand prepared for war passed over before the Lord unto battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Command the priests that bear the ark of the testimony that they come up out of Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come ye up out of Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord were come up out of the midst of Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up unto the dry land, that the waters of Jordan returned unto their place and flowed over all his banks as they did before. And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal, in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, when your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel 
came over this Jordan on dry land, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you, until ye were passed over, as the Lord your God did in the Red Sea, when he dried up from before us, which he dried up before us, until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. I should like to call your attention this morning to that incident in the life and the story of the children of Israel, which we read at the beginning in the fourth chapter of the book of Joshua. Let me read again from verse 19 to the end of verse 24. And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and encamped in Gilgal, in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you, until ye were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us, until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God for ever. This uh, incident here in the life of the children of Israel is one which I feel is of very great importance and has a message to give to all of us who are members of the Christian Church at this present time. For in its own way and in its pictorial and uh, dramatic manner, it really does remind us of what is the function and the purpose of the church. Now, I need scarcely tell you that there is a great deal of confusion about this very thing at the present time, and people have all sorts and kinds of strange notions uh, and ideas as to what is the business of the Christian church. Well, it seems to me to be epitomized here perfectly in what uh, the children of Israel did at the command of Joshua, who was simply obeying the command of God. You remember, they had come through the wilderness, and now they were on the point of entering the land of promise. But they had the Jordan to cross, and they were enabled to cross it in a, in a remarkable manner. God worked a miracle, but he did this extraordinary thing that is recorded in this chapter. He told Moses to pick out twelve of the leaders of the tribes of Israel, and that each one of these men was to take up a stone from the bed of the Jordan. The Jordan was divided, you remember, so that they went through on dry land, and God commanded them to take up twelve stones from the bed of the river, and then to erect these twelve stones on the other side, on the Canaan side, in order that they might be a permanent memorial, so that in future ages, when children and others should ask, what's the meaning of these stones? What do they represent? Well, the children of Israel would be able to give the answer. In other words, these stones had a message to deliver to all subsequent generations. And that seems to me to be a very perfect picture and representation of what is really the function and the purpose of the Christian church. 
What is it? Well, now let me note some of the things with you of which we are reminded here. The first thing, and in many ways one of the most important of the present time, is that we should always realize that the church is here to remind people of history, of certain great historical events. That is the primary business of the church. This is the message of the church. When people pass this building, for instance, and say, well, now, what is that? It calls itself a Christian church. It's a building in which Christian people meet together. But what's it all about? What is it? People today have very little conception of this, and they're confused, and unfortunately, they are partly confused by what they hear on the television and the wireless, in the name of Christianity so often, and what they read in the papers. And they've got entirely false notions as to what the Christian message really is. Now, my point is that first and foremost, it is a reminder of certain events, actions, acts, which have taken place in history. Let me put it negatively. The church is not simply a place in which a certain teaching is put before people. Now, you know the world, uh, it has its uh, teachings. There are societies in the world, and they have a, a teaching which they propagate. The world is full of them at the present time. Some of them are very learned. There are people who call themselves philosophers. And they claim to be studying life. They try to discover what is the matter, what's the cause of our troubles, and what we've got to do in order to live a happy and an harmonious life. It's called philosophy, the study of wisdom. It's a teaching. There are various teachings. There are various schools. And they have arguments with one another, learned arguments, and people think it's all very interesting. They are representatives of teachings. In the same way, you have uh, political theories and ideas, and all these again are presented to us, and we're asked to listen to them and to accept them. Now, the point about all these is that they are teachings, points of view, and indeed this is also true of what we may describe as religion. Religion as such is simply uh, views of men with regard to life in this world. It doesn't matter which religion you take. Some of these ancient religions of the East, the Confucianism of China, the Buddhism of China and India, Mohammedanism, Hinduism, all these religions, what are they? Well, they're teaching. There are teachings which are given to people, telling them how to view life and urging them to do so. And at the same time, they tell them that they've got to live in a certain way. They may have elaborated certain ceremonies and certain ritual and so on. But it's all a matter of teaching which is presented to people. And then there are certain societies, ethical societies as they're called, which don't believe in religion at all, but do believe that people should be taught how to live. And they put these ideas forward. Well now, the thing that marks off the Christian faith, the message of the Bible, from all these others, is that this is primarily a record of historical facts events. This is not a theory. This is not an idea. It's not primarily a teaching. It is primarily a great record of history. And that is why, as you read your Bible from beginning to end, you find there is so much history in it. In all these others that I've mentioned, the historical element is virtually absent. It doesn't really matter at all. There are certain names attached, but you could have the, the teaching and the theory without the names. But here, the facts are vital. 
they're essential. They are the basis of everything. And then I must add to that immediately that this history, which is a record of facts and events, is not the record or the history of what men have done. It is the history of what God has done. See, that's the thing that's emphasized here, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, what God has done. Now, this, as you can see, is a very important and crucial matter. All the teachings to which I've been referring have been started by men, by one man or by a group of men, and they've been added to and elaborated, but it's all coming from man, men's ideas and theories and so on. Now, this is entirely different. This is a record of what God has done. That's the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God. He created. He acted. And the Bible is really nothing but a record of the great acts, the actions of God and the meaning and the object of those great actions. And the task of the church, I say, is to remind people of these. And never was this more necessary than at the present time when we are tending, people are tending to worship man and always talking about what man can do, what man can invent, what man can propose, and so on. Now, here we're in an entirely different realm. The history of what man has done is quite important. I'm not here to detract from it at all. Thank God for every great human achievement and every advance that has been made. Thank God for great men who've been benefactors to the human race. But in this realm, it's entirely different. We are to consider what God has done. And this is the thing we need to lay hold of because it is our only hope in the end. As the psalmist puts it, I have seen an end to all human perfection, but thy commandments are exceeding broad. We are reminded at the very beginning that what matters above everything else in this world of ours is what God has done, what God can still do, what God is going to do. It is the activity of Almighty God. Thank God that this is so. Now, this is our business. We are not here just a body of men and women amongst others. We are not just one society amongst a great variety of societies. That's not the condition of the church. The church is here to remind the world, to remind everybody of God's activity, God's intervention, God's action in the affairs of man. But then I must go on to make a second point, which is very obvious in this story, which is, of course, that the record, the history that we have in the Bible is the history of God's acts or actions of redemption, of deliverance, and of salvation. This again is something that we've got to put right in the front. God's acting. Well, how does he act? Well, he acts in redemption and in deliverance. Now, the story of the children of Israel is, of course, actual history. And the children of Israel were God's people. But they are a picture, at the same time, of God's relationship to the whole world. And the message of the Bible, from beginning to end, is this great message of God's redemption, God's deliverance. You see, here it is in the case of the children of Israel. They had gone down to live in Egypt because of a famine in their country. And uh, they had settled there. But a time came when uh, rulers arose in Israel who didn't remember Joseph, uh, who was himself an Israelite, and who had delivered uh, Egypt in a miraculous and marvelous manner as a result of a dream, you remember, from famine. All that had been forgotten. 
and the children of Israel had now become slaves in the land of Egypt. And they were very cruelly treated, abominably treated, but they were completely helpless. They couldn't do anything at all about themselves, but God intervened. God laid his hand, you remember, on Moses in an extraordinary manner, even from his very birth. And the people were led out of Egypt in a miraculous manner. But then, as we are reminded here, they came to the Red Sea. How could they cross it? Here are the hosts of Pharaoh coming after them with their chariots and their horses, and here are the poor children of Israel with Pharaoh and his hosts behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. It seems calamitous. There's no hope. Suddenly the Red Sea is divided, and they went through on dry land. God. And then he led them through the wilderness. And there was no food there. There's no food in the wilderness. And God provided the manna for them. You remember the story. And now here they are at the end of the journey through the wilderness on the point of crossing the Jordan into Canaan. How are they going to cross? Once more God intervenes. And they are delivered and they enter into the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Well now, the stones are put up to remind people of that. Well, now, in a much bigger way, the function and the purpose of the Christian church is to remind people, remind the whole world, of these great acts of God in redemption and in deliverance. So this is what we are here for. This is what we represent in the world. The church is not a club, not a social club. It's not a club where you can have entertainment. Well, the world is full of that kind of thing. All right, let them have it. I'm not here of necessity to criticize it. But I am here to say that that's not the business of the church. There is fellowship in the church, but that's not the primary function of the church. We are here to remind people of what God has done about us men and our salvation. What does this mean? Well, this is what we've got to spell out today. The very existence of this building is a proclamation of the fact that every one of us is born into this world a sinner. We're all captives. We're all slaves. We're all in a state of bondage. This is the great message of the Bible. It's all due, of course, to men's original rebellion against God. The folly of Adam and Eve listening to the tempter thereby rebelling against God. And what they did, of course, was to make slaves of themselves. From that moment, they lost their liberty, and they became the slaves of the devil. You remember how this is put before us in many, many places in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, You were the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. It goes on to say that everybody in this world walks according to the course of this world, under the God of this world, the prince of this world, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We've all had our conversation in that way. We've all lived in that way, says Paul, obeying the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. Now that's the condition of the whole of the human race, and that's why the world is unhappy. And that's why there's so much confusion and trouble in the world. The world is dominated by the devil, the prince of the power of the earth, the god of this world. And the result is that we are all by nature slaves to the thing to do, what everybody's doing. And slaves to these lusts and evil desires and passions that are within us. Now this is true universally of the whole of the human race. And furthermore, it is true to say this, that we are helpless slaves and hopeless slaves. We tend to think that perhaps education can set us free, but we've discovered that it can't. We've trusted to so many things, but they can't set us free. We are exactly in the position of the children of Israel in the captivity of Egypt. The world is a hard taskmaster. 
The way of the transgressor is hard. There is no peace, self my God, to the wicked. That's the story of the human race, isn't it? In bondage, slaves in captivity. And we can't get out. We can't break loose. Why? Well, as our Lord said, the strong man armed, that's the devil, keepeth his goods in peace. He'll give us a certain amount of apparent liberty, but you try to get out of his grip. You try to get out of that prison cell in which he holds you, and he'll club you down. You can't get free. And all the striving of men to attain to moral and intellectual and spiritual freedom is a complete failure. Uh, we are seeing this in many ways in the modern world. Well, here is the business of the church to tell men and women that they're in bondage to the God of this world, the way of the world, the thing to do, and all the consequent misery and unhappiness to which it leads. And upon all of it there is the wrath of God because we've rebelled against him. Well now, that's the beginning of our message, but it's only the beginning. Our great message is this, that in spite of our folly and in spite of what we are and our helplessness and hopelessness, God has had pity and has had mercy and has had compassion. God has come in. This is the whole record of the Bible. As the Apostle Peter, you remember, put it on the day of Pentecost, indeed as the people, when they came crowding round to see the Apostles and others filled with the Spirit, they said, this is a marvelous thing. We are hearing all these people telling us in their own language the wonderful works of God. And that is the Bible, the wonderful works of God. What mean these stones? What's the purpose of this building? What's a church? It's to tell people of the wonderful works of God. God coming in, intervening and delivering men in his utter helplessness and his hopelessness. How has he done it? Well, I could keep you, of course, for hours, but let me pick out some of these great events that are put before us in the Bible. Take the picture which we have in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. The men and the women have rebelled against God and they've sinned. And the moment they sinned, of course, they realized that they've been wrong. They became aware of guilt and they began to be frightened. And what would have been the rest of the story? Well, it would have been a putrefaction and everything would have ended in nothing. But you remember what we are told. Suddenly, the men and the woman heard the voice of the Lord God who was walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. God had come down to them in their misery and their wretchedness and their fear as a result of their rebellion and sin. God came to them. God came in. God came down. God acted. And of course he pronounced to them the judgment upon their sin, but he didn't leave it at that. He gave them a promise, having told them that there would be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He said, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. He's given them a promise. Now there, you see, that's the typical message. That's our message to the world. We are again, the whole world is in misery, wretchedness, fear, of the present fear of the future. Thank God we can tell them that God is concerned, that God has done something about it, that God has intervened. Let me hurry on to another great act of God. He acted in judgment in the flood. And let's not forget that. God acts in judgment, as we are reminded here, and in deliverance. And he did act in the flood, but he saved that family. The human race goes on. But still they got into trouble. They lost their heads. They tried to build the Tower of Babel to reach up to heaven. They began to think they were gods and that was, nothing was impossible. God passed judgment upon that. He confounded it. And there was great trouble. And then God did an amazing thing. There was a man whose name was Abram. 
And he lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. And he was a pagan. But God spoke to that man. And he told him that he was going to take hold of him and turn him into a nation. And that through that nation, all the nations of the world were going to have this great message and were going to be blessed. One man to be turned into a nation. He commanded him to come out. And he came out not knowing where he went, but God had got a purpose for him and took him to this land of Canaan. The beginning of the great story of the Jews, the children of Israel. Through these people, God spoke to the whole world. This is God's action. It wasn't that Abram suddenly had an idea that he'd move and start a new life and start a dynasty in another land. Not at all. He had no idea. It was God who came. And you read your Old Testament. My dear friends, the history of the Old Testament is of supreme importance for us. We mustn't merely concentrate on the teaching, the history. This is what saves us, what God has done. And so he turned this man into a nation. And you remember the great story. The time came when this nation again found itself in captivity in the land of Babylon. They were conquered because of their disobedience, because of their folly. They were conquered. Their great city of Jerusalem was sacked. And they were carried away captives to Babylon. And there they were, as they had been in Egypt, completely helpless and hopeless. Could do nothing at all. God even used a pagan king called Cyrus to set them at liberty again. And the remnant was led back to its own country. It's God all the time. And then for me to hurry on. Things had been bad. There had been persecutions and trouble. A kind of dead period for 400 years. And you would have thought that everything had come to an end. The period between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the Gospel of Matthew in the New. 400 years of death. Not a move, not a word. And you'd have thought everything came to an end. Then suddenly you read in the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. It's just a good statement of it. That's why I select that. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Herod, being the Tetrarch of Galilee, and Philip, his brother, <coughs> the Tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis. What happened? The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. In the midst of the hopelessness and the despair, God again acted, spoke to John the Baptist, gave him his message. And this forerunner began to preach in a flaming manner, calling people to repentance, saying that the Messiah was about to come. And then, of course, towering over it all, when the fullness of the times had come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. The birth of the babe of Bethlehem. You know, my friends, it seems to me so sad today that people are always talking about the Christian attitude towards war and peace and politics and industry and education. The Christian attitude. And people are ignorant of these great facts and events. The church is here to proclaim the birth of a babe in a stable in Bethlehem. And to say that that babe born in the stable is the eternal son of God. God hath visited and redeemed his people. God sent forth his son. It's an act. This isn't a teaching, barely. It isn't a philosophy. It's not a religion. It's what God has done. He has sent his son into the world. And the son came. And this is the great fact of history. This is what Christianity is. It's pointing back to this. What mean these stones? What's this building? It's a proclamation that 1977 years ago, the very Son of God was born as a babe in that stable in Bethlehem, and his little body was placed in the manger. What's he come for? Is it merely to teach us? Well, he did teach. 
He said, don't do that. He said, give us an example. He did. He said, don't, no, no. Why did he come? The Son of Man, he said, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why he's come. He has been made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Well, here it is, a great fact. And the important thing about our Lord, I say again, is not his teaching even, perfect and glorious though it is. It is that he went deliberately to that cross on Calvary's hill. What happened there? Oh, you say, it's the action of men. It's cruel men, not understanding him, jealous of him. The world always putting to death its greatest benefactors. Men crucified him and he died. In a sense, it's true. But that isn't the real explanation of what happened. They were but the instruments. What was happening on the cross? It was God acting. God that laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. God has provided his own Lamb. All in the Old Testament about burnt offerings and sacrifices, it's pointing forward to him. Here's the Lamb of God. And God acts. God lays on him. We beheld him smitten, stricken of God. It's God who put him to death. Because without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. My dear friends, this is what the world is ignorant, ignorant of. There is no way of salvation or deliverance apart from this. But it's God who's provided it. God was in and through Christ reconciling the world unto himself. We don't reconcile ourselves unto God. It's God who reconciles us unto himself. That's how he's done it. So you have these great facts. And then he died and they put his body in a grave. And then this mighty shattering event. God raised him from the dead. Bursting asunder the bands of death. The mighty act of God in the resurrection. And on you go. Day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. Here we are, members of a Christian church. How did the church ever came into, come into being? The church came into being on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. It was inaugurated then. And it was inaugurated by what? By this amazing event, 120 people met together in an upper room and they were praying and suddenly there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. They hadn't created this. This is the coming of the Holy Ghost. This other mighty event, God acting. God sending his spirit upon these people, enabling them to preach and to bear their witness, giving them understanding and boldness all you read of in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts, remember. It's always actions. Gave them power to work miracles. And so the church comes into being and starts on a great mission. And what is the message? It's all about what God has done. And supremely what God has done in and through his only begotten Son. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you know, my friends... It doesn't stop at that. And we mustn't stop at that. That's only the beginning of the church. And we know what happened. We know that after a while, the church began to go astray. A Roman emperor called Constantine decided to become a Christian. He decided it mainly politic on political grounds. The Christians were good people. They were helpful people. And his empire was in trouble. And he realized that these could be the most useful people. So he said he became a Christian and he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. He tried to turn it into a religion. And he succeeded to a very great extent. And Christianity very nearly came to an end. And the story goes on for many centuries. But it didn't come to an end. And we are here this morning because it didn't come to an end. What prevented it from coming to an end? Oh, the action of God again. God intervening in revival and reformation. You see, the whole story of the church is one of the interventions, the actions of God. It's the history of God acting. Look at those dark Middle Ages. 
Roman Catholicism rampant through the country. People couldn't read the Bible. It was in Latin. They couldn't understand it. All the ceremony and the ritual. No gospel. The priesthood, the saints, Virgin Mary, and the people in gross ignorance and darkness. Christianity virtually had ceased to exist in a true and in a living sense. And you would have imagined that the end had come. Who could stand up against this mighty, wealthy church with 12 centuries of tradition behind her? It seemed completely hopeless, but it wasn't. God called a man named Martin Luther, opened his eyes, gave him understanding. He was not abler than many another man, but this was the man that God chose, the monk that shook the world. It wasn't the monk who shook, it was God who shook the world through the monk, shook the church, purified the church, reformation, a new beginning. And on it has gone. Were it not that God keeps on intervening in revival and coming again in the power of his might and pouring his spirit upon the church, the church would have finished long ago. If the church were yours and mine, there'd be no church by now. It's in spite of us. God keeps his work alive by coming in raising up men again and doing his mighty deeds. Well now, this is the business of the church, you see, to remind people of this. And let me go on and elaborate that just a bit by reminding you of the essential character and the nature of these acts, these actions of God in history. And it's put before us here quite simply. The Lord your God, you, you, when the, when the, let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over. What's the nature of God's action? It's miraculous. It's supernatural. We are here to proclaim an almighty God. We are here to say that Christianity is supernatural. It is a miraculous life. In other words, we are not people who merely hold to a certain teaching and try to live a good life. We do that. But that's not the great truth about us. The essential truth about us is this. That a miracle has happened in us because of God's action. Now, I'm not saying this. The Bible itself says it. You remember the story of a man called Nicodemus. He was a great man. He was a teacher, a master in Israel, a very learned man. And he'd been watching and listening to our Lord in Jerusalem. He'd seen him working miracles, He'd heard his incomparable teaching, and he was deeply moved and impressed. So he decided that he'd go and talk to our Lord and ask him the secret of this extraordinary ability that he had to teach and preach and work miracles. He went at night, because he, of course, was a man who'd been highly trained, and he was afraid of it for his reputation, and afraid what other people might think of him, because this Jesus was a carpenter, an unlearned man, hadn't been through the schools. So he went by night, and you remember what he said. He said, Rabbi, Master, there must be a teacher sent from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And then I think he was on the point of putting his question. And his question, of course, would have been this. He was going on to say, I am a master in Israel. I know more than the people. But you know, it seems to me, you know more than I do. And I'd like to have this extra that you've got. What is it? How can I get this extra? He was never allowed to put his question. Our Lord interrupted him and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus couldn't understand this. He was a clever man. 
And he said to our Lord rather facetiously, How can a man be born when he's old? He was an old man. Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Clever, wasn't it? And our Lord, as it were, smiled at him. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, but can't even see it. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, he must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Now here is the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. You're trying to understand this, said our Lord to Nicodemus. It can't, you can't understand it. It's beyond understanding. It's a miracle. It's an act of God. It's the Creator who created men at the beginning, recreating him, giving him a new start, a new life, a new everything. The Apostle Paul teaches exactly the same. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And this idea that we as Christians can explain exactly to people what our teaching is and persuade them and reason them and argue them into it and talk to them about the Christian view of art and literature and so on, it's a denial. We preach a miracle. A man can't understand. It doesn't matter though he may have the greatest brain in the country today. It's not enough. It is God alone that can save a man. And he does it by working a miracle within. It's not, taking, it's not man taking a decision. It's God renewing, regenerating, and putting his own life into the man's soul. It is miraculous. It is supernatural. And that is what we've got to preach to people. That we are not merely asking them to accept a teaching or to start living in a different way. All that's involved. But we are announcing to them that God can give them a new start, can create them anew, and make new men and women of them. This is the message that's needed by the world today, not exhortation to people. You find some of these ecclesiastics issuing a, a great appeal to the nation because of industrial troubles, appealing to the men and women of this country to exercise discipline. They can't do it. They must be born again. It's no use appealing to people. They're slaves. They've got to be set at liberty spiritually. And then you can address an appeal to them. Well, now then, this is the character of the actions that God has been taking throughout the centuries. Let me try to sum it all up by asking a question. Well, then, what is this great message that we have? And here it's summarized for us. Point is, these stones are to say that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you might fear the Lord, you, the children of Israel also, might fear the Lord forever. What's our message? What's the meaning of all this history that I've recapitulated for you? And incidentally, when you read your psalms next, notice how the psalmist so often goes over the whole of the history again. Why, our greatest danger is to forget the history and to turn this glorious message into some sort of theory or philosophy or teaching. It's the history of the acts of God. We must never lose sight. But this is the message that they convey. The power of God. The power of God in judgment. And the world needs to be reminded of this. I believe that the judgment of God is abroad at the present time. That the state of the world is partly the judgment of God, the wrath of God upon the pride and the arrogance and the folly of men. That's what we are witnessing. These stones, what mean these stones? Well, says Joshua to the people, you are children, when they're asked the question, must give this answer. The children of Israel were captives in the land of Egypt, and they were absolutely helpless. 
But God raised a man called Moses, and he led them out. And they set out on their journey to escape. And Pharaoh gathered his hosts and his chariots, and they're after them, and they're going to destroy them. And they really believed they were going to destroy them. But what happened? It was Pharaoh and his hosts and chariots that were destroyed in the Red Sea. The children of Israel went through on dry land. The moment they had gone through, the sea closed in. And there are Pharaoh and his hosts drowned in the depths of the Red Sea. The judgment of God. And we are here to tell men and women that God is. And that they're all under judgment. Whether they experience it in its height in this world, they're all going to experience it when they come to die. We are to tell men and women that they're responsible to God. And they'll have to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. So, we proclaim judgment. But we don't stop at that. This power of God reminds us also that we are to tell people that there is hope for everybody. Salvation, thank God, doesn't depend upon our power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, says Paul, why it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. He's a God of the miracle, the God of the supernatural. There is nobody hopeless. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And Jeremiah, as vile as may I, as vile as he, wash all my sins away. Nobody is hopeless. Why? Because God can regenerate. We can't understand. God can give us understanding. We can't reform ourselves. God can make us new men. So that we can say, oh, how I love thy law, the power of God. And isn't it marvelous? You've got the problem of alcoholism and of drug addiction here, haven't you, in Crewe, as it's in all the cities of this country at the present time. The problem of immorality, infidelity and divorce, promiscuity, all these things. I remember once changing trains here in Crewe Station and having a cup of coffee and overhearing a conversation between two porters and a woman. And what they were talking about was the horrible number of cases of venereal disease in, in the local hospital. That was the topic of their conversation. That's the world. But you see, this is the glory of the gospel. There is hope for anybody. There's hope for everybody. Because it doesn't depend upon us, but upon God, the power of God, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. The Holy Ghost can convict the stoutest sinner. He can regenerate him. No one is hopeless because it is the power of God and not the power of the understanding of men. And finally, and this is such a glorious hope for the church, I've been reminding you of the history, and I've been showing you how so often in the long course of the history of the church, the church seemed to be trembling on the brink of the grave, finished everything against her. But God always came in, and it's still the same. God is still the same. His almightiness is in no sense diminished. People are talking about communism and materialism and humanism and all that's so against the church today, taking the people away on Sundays, television, wireless, bingo. Oh, they say, what's going to happen to the church? I'll tell you what's going to happen to the church. The church is going on until God's plan is perfect and complete until the fullness of the Gentiles and all Israel shall be saved. God's work and plan is complete and entire. And there'll be a final judgment upon all evil and sin and wrong and the devil himself 
will be cast into the lake of perdition. But the hand of the Lord is mighty. It's almighty. Nothing can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. My dear friends, your privilege and mine is to announce this, to proclaim this. People ask, what mean these stones? What are you Christians? What is the church? What does it all mean? What have we got to say? That's what we've got to say. We tell them about God and his mighty acts and supremely his mighty act in sending his only begotten dearly beloved son into the world to live, to die, to rise again, to reign and to come in glory for us and our salvation. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we humbly beseech thee to give us a new awareness and consciousness of the glory of our heritage, the truth which we represent. Lord, open our eyes and send thy mighty power upon us. God of our fathers, be our God. Let it be known that thou art still God in Israel and that with thee nothing shall be impossible. Hear us, O Lord, and magnify and glorify thine own name amongst us and especially amongst thy dear people that meet here regularly. And unto thee shall we give all the praise and all the honor and all the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Now shall we join in singing our closing hymn, hymn number 264, 264. Thy hand, O God, has guided thy flock from age to age. The wondrous tale is written full clear on every page, 264.
And now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, the glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.